0: Welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. I am Ben Wager, along with my co-host Don Gibson. Hey there. And today we're going to take a look at some uh, films from the 1985 uh, season of Oscars and Golden Globes. Uh, but these were films that were shot in 1984. And they've got some connections in regards to that. They're both uh, historical dramas set in um, you know foreign countries. And both epics in a way. Yeah, yeah, they're epics. I would definitely say they're both classic films um, with uh, amazing casts and very interesting side stories that come along with the uh, with the movie. So we're going to open up with uh, me introducing A Passage to India. Which is a film that was, as I said, filmed in 1984, directed by David Lean and also written by David Lean from the novel by E.M. Forrester. And it also was adapted for a Broadway play as well. The cast of this movie uh, Peggy Ashcroft, uh, Judy Davis, James Fox, Alec Guinness, Victor Banerjee, who's uh, an Indian, uh, well, at the time was a well known Indian actor. it had about a $14 million U.S. budget, and it made about $38 million and it was nominated for quite a few awards uh, in the Oscar categories. It was uh, nominated for, obviously, Best Picture, which is one of the reasons that we have selected these films for their nominations of Best Picture. Interestingly enough, this film was nominated for Best Picture in the Oscars, but the Golden Globes, it did not receive a, a nomination for Best Picture. And uh, it did win for Peggy Ashcroft; she won Best Actress, and for the musical score by Maurice Jarre, which was also very good. I think it was uh, the London Symphony was uh, was brought in to do the the score, and it is very powerful. I think uh, that score. In fact, in fact, both movies had very good scores that we're going to talk about today. Sure. So the movie is it's a it's a it's kind of a classic story of the peak of the English colonial empire, kind of. Starting to uh, erode a little bit, and we're seeing um, the the tension that's happening in India as a a, a woman and her um, her I guess it would be her future daughter in law uh, decide to go visit the the son who, who is uh, an official, kind of a colonial magistrate in um, a town, not in a major city, but in a smaller area of India. And so the mother and the, the fiance go on and they sail to India. And then they are, you know, they, they go through, they land in a main port, I think it was probably Mumbai or one of these ports. And then they uh, are taken via train to the town where the, the son lives. And it's you know, it's a, it's probably in India, it's probably a small town from the way it's kind of represented in the film, but it does have a, a small colonial presence. It's very much part of the, the, the English zone of control. And there's a, you know, a hierarchy of the, the English who are there and then the, and the local Indians mm-hmm. and then and the difference in the relationships between the groups. And we see, um, you know the a lot of the perspective of this is from uh different uh angles so there's the perspective from the older woman who is kind of coming to see her son and and excited about interacting and she has a very christian-based belief system of like this is you know,
1: mrs Moore,
0: and she needs to you know, we need to treat the indians a certain way equally and and respect them and then the young uh, fiance who's, she's very confused and she's not going to, she's, she's not going to marry this guy and she has to tell him that. And then, the, and then he is a very jaded magistrate who he's, he's satisfied with what he's doing, but he also recognizes that he, he, along with many of the other British officials find that the Indians have a very low ceiling of operations. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, assumption, false assumptions and, and just basic discrimination, uh, as the colonial overlords, they, they feel I
1: think better. He's jaded. I didn't think he was jaded. I thought he was just sort of a, a low key bureaucrat that just, um, I I
0: felt like he was a little, I felt like he was a little lost or, or, lost. He had to be. you know, he's in a, he's, there's like, there's a competitiveness that he has to kind of play along with. Right. And, and I, you know, so I did get that sense. And there's, you know, some of the other characters in the film, which I, to be honest with you, I found a little confusing, um, one of the key characters is uh dr Aziz, who is a a very passionate Indian doctor who is the assistant to the white colonial British doctor in the in the town and you know he's well respected amongst his small group he's a Muslim he's not a Hindu and you know at the time there's there is a lot of tension between Hindu and Muslims, but under the colonial power of, of England, it was much easier for them to all focus their frustrations on on Britain until the British leave, and then they 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 have their own little uh conflict after the British. More movies about that. Yeah, there are more <laughs> movies about that. So, you know, so this movie kind of weaves in a lot of the the colonial situation at that time. And you know, we're talking, you know, post World War One, pre World War Two, so probably late twenties, early thirties, something in that neighborhood. Would you say I guess like twenty
1: four? Is that, oh, is it, is it that? Is it that early? Twenty four. So, it was. It was written in twenty four, and people just sort of say. Yeah. it was 24. Interesting
0: enough, you know, you don't see India was devastated by the um, the pandemic at that time. They lost, uh, you know, some people say that they could have lost fifty million people in that in that pandemic. But you don't really. That part of the story is just zeroed out. I mean, he's a doctor too, and you'd think as one of the main characters, you know, you you would have that would have been addressed, but completely not part of the story at all. And uh, now, and you know, ironically, now India is is in the midst of one of the worst affected countries in in regards to our current pandemic. So it's kind of an interesting connection in that sense, but not addressed at all in this movie. Doctor Aziz is fascinated with the the English, um, and he meets uh, Mrs Moore when she's on a moonlight stroll outside the club, and she goes to an kind of like an abandoned mosque and he's there because he's trying to get his thoughts together about life and everything. And then he sees her and thinks she's almost like a ghost. And he's like, you're not supposed to be here. And she's like, I took my shoes off. I thought it was okay. And he's like, Oh, it is okay if you have your shoes off and they have a nice little conversation and it's initial bonding between the two of them and uh you know he becomes enamored with Mrs Moore and and the young and there's a little bit of tension i think because he's a widower there's a little bit of tension between him and Judy Davis who plays the young uh fiance and i don't remember what the character's Adele. name is Adele Adele and the whole idea of you know there's a little bit of tension there inviting them to to come to this uh this cave that's a tourist site about a day's train ride or half a day's train ride from their town. And that becomes, and that that's kind of like the peak of the movie's tension because at the you know, when they get to this um, uh, tourist site, he, to impress the English, he has basically used his entire life savings to arrange this trip. And uh, and it's, you know, he's got tons of servants and all this food. And it turns out to be in a, a, a caravan of people. I mean, when he's there, there's 40 people supporting this event that he has hired. And it's just, a you know, he, he thinks this is how the English would do it. And so he's just completely committed. They an elephant he- in. Yeah, he, they ride an elephant in, which incidentally, um, I believe Peggy Ashcraft said was her favorite part of this movie was riding that elephant in, in, uh, in some of the things that she talked about. Because the, there was a huge amount of tension filming this. The production of this movie did not go smoothly in regards to the relationships between the people on the cast and the crew. David Lean, who was the director, who hadn't filmed anything since uh, in 14 years and probably was a little rusty and certainly cranky. And uh, had a horrible dynamic, almost the entire cast hated his guts. And uh, the producer had to force people and and the crew didn't like him either. He was very, apparently he was just not a good person. And the cast attacked him and disrespected him and he was manipulative and cut out lots of him and Alec Guinness went at it. to the point where, you know, Alex Guinness, I think he almost walked out of the role because the reality was he had prepared to be a much larger character and then ends up, you know, they cut out huge amounts of his parts. And he had prepared a, a a Hindu dance that he had practiced for two weeks that, that was in this film that they ended up just cutting completely out. And I will say that it was very weird because this film was in the 80s. Okay, yes, the 80s was a long time ago for us, 40 years or whatever, but it still feels... Like this film was from the '60s. I mean, the way the film is shot, the way the styles are, it feels like it's a you know total old school movie from the 1960s. I didn't particularly see why they did that. I mean, I mean maybe that's just the way they had a limited budget. They were using this guy David Lean's style, and he was you know coming out of the '60s, and uh, I felt like they could have done a lot more with this movie in regards to. Ah, uh, the quality of the picture, the quality of the set, the everything. It just felt, in my opinion, it felt a little cheap and sixty ish how it was kind of put together. It was very pocketed. I didn't feel there were good transitions in regards to some very powerful scenes, you know, the scenes in the cave, the scenes with the temples with both the different women with the there were these moments that were very strong. but th- there were just the connections between all the different scenes. I felt just didn't transition well. I, and I think you're
1: right. I think it really, is like he did Dr. Zhivago and, and Lawrence of Arabia, and this seems very much like those two films, which are both from like 60 and 57. I'm not sure the dates. Yeah, but so you just don't feel like this like guy, that.
0: he hasn't really evolved as a, a you know, he, he basically, he kind of flipped a switch back on to where he was years earlier. And, you know, and I think it just, it is feels dated in that sense. Although, I mean, the, the moments in the film are very good. And as I said, Alec Guinness plays this very well-respected Hindu uh, professor, kind of spiritualist guru. And it just is weird to see an, uh, an English guy playing the Indian guy. But I guess that's just the way it was because it's also part of the, I found out later, part of the British film protection laws was to protect British actors and providing jobs. And so it was a big deal that the uh, Dr. Aziz was played by an Indian in, uh, from India and not an Indian from England who um, would have had a better right. They had to get like an exclusionary permission to to have that happen. And that was a big deal that it was like the first major Indian role in a in a British picture. So, it's, you know, it's kind of weird to think that that was happening in the 80s, you know? And I will say that there's some very powerful social justice moments in this movie. It, it has kind of a climactic trial ending where, you know, Dr. Z is accused of, of raping or, or sexually attacking or something, Adele, and she has to testify and, you know, and, and there's a big climactic event and all the locals are protesting against the, the the colonial overseer and the injustice of Dr. Aziz being put on trial. And the way that they handle it with Mrs. Moore being basically shipped off back to England during the trial or right before the trial, she leaves and so that she wouldn't have to testify. And she ends up dying uh, on the ship going back from a, you know like a heart attack or something and literally buried at sea. Yeah, dumped and, in the ocean. And yeah, just literally awful. just you know, they did the ceremony and they just kind of slid her off into the ocean, which yeah. was and they showed that, which was kind of interesting. Um, so you know, the Indian British dynamic I found fascinating because, you know, I thought, you know, the idea of the stereotypes of those times, I thought they 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 handled that very well. I mean, I, I felt it was very realistic. Under, and as a history teacher too, you know, understanding this on a certain level, you know, you still see this today. Like there's assumptions, the limited ability of people. And it's ironic because I, I would say that probably in our, the U.S. medical system right now is is wholly, huge, hugely impacted by the fact that we recruit a lot of medical personnel from India to to work in the U.S. now because their medical system is, is um, able to really provide Strong doctors. And so, you know, we have a lot of Indian doctors and Indian people in in the medical and other area professions as well. Uh, and it's a it's a very fast growing immigrant population in the United States that is probably in the last ten or fifteen years really uh, really kind of made a difference in in the identity of certain areas of the United States. It, it was interesting to watch this movie and then kind of think about the the Indian identity pre independence and then and then post independence and then looking at the the connections into the community because I live in New Jersey in northern New Jersey where there's a lot of uh, huge Indian. Communities, and you know, so I I see and hang and work and interact with Indians all the time, and you know, it's just a, a you know understanding that dynamic and then watching that picture, it just made me think and reflect a lot about their history and the interactions, and then you know, it's it's been a it certainly has been a real struggle, and I thought that you know the countries have kind of done well, uh, but right now you know there's there's always strengths and weaknesses in every situation, so. In that sense, I like the movie in its general way, but I didn't actually, the execution of the movie, I felt a little more disappointed than I thought I would be. And I spent a lot of time talking about Don, so why don't you share some
1: opinions? You touched on a lot there. So I, I think I think the movie's fascinating. One of the reasons for me is I, I read the book by Forster and I've taught it a number of times, and it's a really beautifully constructed narrative. Really gets a clear idea of what a mess India was turning into you know the good i don't know good intentions i guess pave the road to hell and all this feeling of the the brits they want to do the right thing and they're trying to civilize you know with their roads and their ideas and it's and they're but they're their concept of civilization and just you know that the shots so i think the thing that david Lean did really well was the shots of the beautiful um, you know the estates and the country club and the polo fields that england put into India and they don't belong there. And the beauty of India, there's beautiful shots of the Ganges, of the Marbar Hills. And there's these lovely shots when the train comes into the landscape. And And that Lean's known for this. These, you know, he did in Jivago and also Bridge of River Kwai*. And he does these lovely, you know, landscape shots. And so I think he really created a, an effective um, uh, contrast between the, the two cultures and how England just basically tried to move England into India. and you know, when when Mrs. Moore and Adele first arrive, they, they go to the club and they tour all the English things. And, and then they, uh, they see an English play that's, that's, you know, playing back in England and, and, you know, Mrs. Moore and Adele, they just want to, they keep talking about seeing the real India. And as you said, this issue between Hindu and Muslim isn't raised once, no one says a word about it. It's just like, oh, they're all just Indians and they have no concept for what really is happening in this culture and you know and adele adele's sort of uh you know naive passion to learn about india is is genuine there's a great scene of her riding her bike on her own and she just wants to be left alone and then she bikes down this abandoned trail and then she finds i'm assuming it's a hindu temple we're not it's not really explained to us and then there's you know the, the kama sutra comes from india so there's very Graphic sort of statues of, of naked you know couples embracing and it's very sexual and you know the Brits in the twenties that was not part of their thing. Uh, but, but
0: also just remembering that 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 scene that you're talking about, then the, suddenly all the monkeys appear oh. and become violently aggressive. Yeah, the monkeys chase, all... her, chase her off, kind of like a you know like a weird Wizard of Oz scene or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's like and she's freaked out and and so and you know so this whole so the the. Ian Forster, this book was written in 24, and you know he wrote a, a number of books. A Room with the View, there's another one I'm forgetting. He's a very successful English author, and it took forever for this film to get uh, made into a film because he was so worried. They It was very successful in England, and he was really worried, and, and that's what I think is so effective about it, of, of not going on one side or the other. It's not about the British being right or the Indians being right. It's about what happened, and let's just see it from as many perspectives as possible. And that's reflected really well in the two characters, I think, that are really fascinating in it. Uh, Mrs. Moore is this older woman. And she says fascinating things about, you know, this whole idea of Adele coming to England to, sorry, to India to meet this guy. And is she going to love him or not? And she she talks about the carnal embrace and why are all lives so obsessed with these kinds of things. And she really says philosophical, fascinating things. There's a lot more of it in the book. And this guy professor godbowley and um the that issue is like i think it's i i, I think I'm, I'm much more passionate about the film because I, I i've seen it a couple times i hadn't seen it for years and i, I just love re-watching it but the alec guinness uh brown face thing um it's uh, not a good thing um they really should not have done that it's like ben kingsley when he played Gandhi. I think a year or two before in in Adam Burroughs, Gandhi and it's just I mean as you said as these are legal issues with the film industry and they made them for specific reasons but in when you look at the film now it's just it's cringing it's I don't know if anyone's seen the movie the the party with Peter Sellers who plays an Indian guy that it's a comedy it's Peter Sellers but it, you know he was worried uh, Guinness was worried that am I going to be look like this and I'll tell you he looks exactly like that he looks like a Brit kind of making fun of Indians and maybe he didn't intend to, but uh, I don't see how you can get away with it. Obviously cultures change a lot in the last 40 years, but it's not a good look. And those, those scenes for me were cringeworthy, but everything else. And they were talking about that. There was a lot of revision looking at Fashions India later. Um, But uh, I think the film, I think it's really beautiful. And I think the, the passion and the, as you said, it's just so many really effective scenes of, interactions between different characters from really different points of view, whatever you I guess the philosophical point of view of it is pretty well expressed. I think you're right that it's a bit of a David Lean film and he probably, you know, his era was clearly 15, 20 years before and he probably did it the way he always did it. But I really um I think it works really well. Um I think it's a it makes you think about things and I really recommend anyone that wants to watch the film. uh, the book is a uh, it really is, it's, if you see the film, I would recommend you read the books. It's, it's a great story and it really makes you think about this historical episode. Oh yeah, one thing else I wanted to mention is this film. So it, went, it took forever to make, uh, to get it produced. And this other guy is a very well-known Indian filmmaker. He made something called the Apu Trilogy, which many people consider this great, one of the founding great Indian films. His name is uh, Satyajit Rajit uh, Ray. He really wanted to make Passage to India, and they shut him out. I really, I, I, I don't know. It would have been such a great thing to see this guy make this film because I think he would have. He understood it. He grew up in this era, and he, and he was a, he's an incredible filmmaker. And I, all the politics, and this took forever to get this film made. And I, it's a sad thing um, that he wasn't um, involved. So I just wanted to mention that. But I was, I was thinking, I didn't realize that this really well-known Indian filmmaker could have made the film. He didn't. But I, I would say it's a film worth seeing, even though there's a couple of uh, warts on it.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I you know it does make you think, and it you know the character, like I said before, the character development uh, is very strong. The characters leave a strong impact on a certain level. Absolutely, I just felt like holistically it wasn't as well assembled as it could have been. The flavor of it was definitely s- still, you know. 60s kind of vibe to it but you know i i'm glad i saw it and i'm glad i got the ability to see this classic and to me is, that has value and that's it's important okay. it's not going to be a film i probably see again but i will i will say that i could appreciate how you are looking at it from an academic lens as well
1: you know and i think actually at these two films so the other film we're looking at is the killing fields i think they're both like i really i guess it's partly sentimental because these are films that i watched when they came out and i and i think they're about very important moments in history the killing fields i don't know it's there's a lot of moments in it that are uh, very heavy handed were being delivered this issue it's about the khmer rouge's you know devastation of of cambodia in the 70s and they committed a genocide against basically the, the intellectuals. And like, there's moments I think are really well done, but it, the images and the way they carried across definitely through a Western lens. Um, we see it through, I guess I'll get into it. We see it from the, the point of view of, of this uh, Sidney Shanberg, who is the New York Times reporter that was covering, covering Cambodia um, at the time. So, this is, you know, Cambodia really started to dissolve in, in, in a political sense because of the Vietnam War and, and the Americans started bombing in Cambodia, they already had issues, political strife. And, and and there was this group, the Khmer Rouge, that were, you know, guerrillas at the time and fighting for control um, from a government that had more Western influence or they had, you know, they weren't. It was
0: kind of a monarchy, like an authoritarian monarchy, uh, you know, very post-colonial. Yeah, put, with connections to the West. We're going to put you into power. And, you know, and the film kind of clicks in in the early 70s at the, you know, as as the Vietnam Wars escalating into a regional war with bombings in Laos and yeah. involved in Cambodia. And, and that's where we're kind of seeing this movie pick up.
1: Yeah. And it's well, it's interesting, too, because when we, when we first arrive, it's when um, things, I guess, I don't know if you'd call them stable, but they were better than they were two, three years later. And uh, so the, you know, all the Western journalists are, are covering you know, basically the civil unrest that's happening in, um, in in Cambodia. And as you said, they had this monarchy that had, you know, obviously there's lots of corruptions, there's lots of issues that, that, that happened over the years. And so the, they, you know, there was unrest and, and there was this group of people that they said they represented the peasants, the peasant farmers of the country. And many people did. They, they liked what they were doing. They were, I guess you'd say they were akin in, in some ways, the the ideas that, you know, Castro had in, in Cuba that, you know, let the people and, and stop, you know, uh, the people of the country, the peasantry, let them, why can't they have some sort of control and direction uh, of the where this country is going to go? And why do we have to listen to these intellectuals that steal everything from us? And so philosophically, that's what they were doing. And uh, boy, did you know they? It was a a terrible situation that was created. So we're, we're there first of all when that's that stuff's happening, and then a couple of years pass. And then we see the arrival of the Khmer Rouge coming in Phnom Penh, and um, the movie is based on a book. This guy Schanberg, who wrote, who wrote for the Times, he won a Pulitzer. It was called "The Life and Death of Dith Prawn. It's about Schoenberg's story about being in Cambodia, covering the war, but it's really through the lens of him working with this guy Dith Prawn, who was basically his liaison. He had connections, and he was a journalist. But you know, uh, all the stories were coming back because of Schonberg, and so Dith Pran was the you know, the main conduit for us seeing it. So we're seeing it through Western eyes, uh, American journalists, you know, being empathetic and understanding towards uh, somebody that is from Cambodia. Uh, when the Khmer Rouge come in, they are not what Dithpron and many people hope that were, the country would be governed by the people, et cetera. They came in and they were in terribly run regime where basically uh, gangs of thugs ran around in their, you know, their Jeeps and executed people uh, for revenge speak at basically how they were treated. When they take power, uh, they basically wanted to, you know, uh, take revenge on all the Westerners and all the Westerners got, got out of there. And then the journalists um, uh, took uh, refuge in the, I think it was the French embassy. And then th- that, this is the sort of the middle of the film. And then they um, all get out, except for Dith Prawn and uh, they try to get the Prana. there's a very dramatic sequence of him faking a Pope passport for him and trying to get him to escape but they can't and they re- and then he has to stay and so the second act of the film the and this, this is really the there's a lot of build up and it's, it's it's beautifully done it's you know terrifying visuals throughout the film because it's a really terrible period uh, in the end there was something like 1.5 million people executed by pol pot's regime the last section we see um, jeth Prawn's experiences in the in these camps, and it's uh, th- these kinds of things are just harrowing. It's just it's awful how they were treated, and the name the killing fields comes from him finally being able to escape and getting out of there. And these there's this long escape sequence, and then he ends up slipping off some sort of you know narrow muddy path through these I guess rice paddy kind of things, and then he's ending up in a some a nightmare you know, poltergeist sequence, you know, surrounded by skeletons and skulls. And and that's the killing fields is they used um, the, the bodies of all these people to kill uh, these uh, people they killed um, to fertilize the fields is where the, the name of the, the film comes from. Yeah, it's
0: a very powerful uh, film. You know, the, the Khmer Rouge were following kind of the agrarian revolution, cultural revolution textbook of the Chinese, actually. And so a lot of kind of the model that they they were following was a very warped version. Not that, that the the original model was that good anyway, but the idea of of the agrarian revolution was, you know, basically they took over and then they moved everybody out of the city. They literally just marched the entire population of Phnom Penh into the into the agricultural areas. They created these uh, these harsh labor camps. Um, and they and they used these camps to kind of reprogram the younger population into kind of these brutal, mindless followers of of the Khmer Rouge policies. And then they were constantly looking for anybody who might challenge that by, you know, people who had been intellectuals or students or doctors or anybody with an education. They wanted to kind of, you know, weed them out of this population. Uh, By saying, you know, we we recognize your value at at the beginning and, you know, come and we forgive you. And then eventually everybody was just, you know, trying to cover up. And even uh, Prawn was, you know, pretending to be a taxi driver the whole time, that he didn't know French, that he didn't know English. And, you know, and he was in constant fear that, you know, he could be randomly selected to be eliminated because, I mean, children, preteen children, were making decisions on life and death. You know, they had these they would carry these uh, plastic bags, you know, like the, essentially these little grocery bags. And if they went up to somebody and just checked their hands and felt like, oh, you know what? you This doesn't represent somebody who works hard. They take this person away out into a side field and they would literally bag their heads and suffocate them to death and kill them on the spot. And a lot of the dead people in the killing fields that. Um, as he's as he's trying to escape out of the labor camp, they're still wearing the blue bags on their heads that they were killed with. And so there's, you know, as he's walking through these rice fields of all these corpses, there's people with these blue bags wrapped around their skulls and their heads. It's, it's, it's a just, horrifying yeah, sequence. Yeah, just absolutely horrifying. Very, very impactful. And, and you know, I actually went to Cambodia in, uh, I think, 08 and 2008, and I saw... I went to the memorial for this, where the major, one of the major killing areas, you know, where the the camps outside of Phnom Penh, where they, you know, there's a giant temple full of skulls of these people. And it's kind of like a living, you know, like a memorial. And, you know, I was able to talk to some, you know, some like basically tuk-tuk drivers who's... You know, were old enough that they have remembered it. You know, and 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 just shared some basic stories. Nothing, but uh, you know, it was it, it, There was nobody. It was a terrifying experience for just every single person in that population who was not kind of that core of Khmer
1: Rouge. And I, I think I think they get that. The film conveys that very well. I think they're very good. The first half or a little bit more is very much from Western point of view from this character Sidney Shanberg. Who, by the way, is played by Sam Water- Waterston. The film really turns into something. This stuff that you're talking about, when he's in the camps and they're trying to, the people running the tra- camps are trying to trick him to see if he knows English and see, you know, they also said that if you had just an imprint of your of glasses on your nose, that you know, everyone was hiding the fact that they had any possibility of any intellectuality. That feeling of of you know being totally terrified is incredibly well conveyed in the last. Whatever third of the film. One of the fascinating things about this this film is the guy that played uh, Dith Prawn, His name is Hang, and it's N G O R. So is that Ngor? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not even sure. So his his story is absolutely fascinating. So he's this guy that they hired to play this role. He never acted in his life, and so they they found him. They you know hired him on the spot and, and said that you know you got the role. And one of the arguments was, is that he'd been acting his whole life. He survived. He was, he lived in Cambodia. He'd been through the whole thing and his situation, he went to one of these work camps and his wife was in labor and uh, there was a problem with the delivery and he was a doctor and he couldn't uh, do anything about it. Cause if he immediately, if he admitted, he was a doctor, then that was it for him. And so both his uh, wife and child died the situation, and so this is something this guy survived through. His portrayal of 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 Death Prawn is um, absolutely riveting. He won the Oscar for Best Supporting. I don't know, I don't know why he's called Best Supporting Actor. It was, he was definitely Best Actor. They saw what saw Sam Watterson as the main actor, um, and so he's phenomenal. And then his story is 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 crazy. Then he became a successful actor. Acted in many films. He was in a film that I quite like called My Life with Michael Keaton, and and then um, he was doing quite well, and he lived in LA, and he was he was gunned down in some sort of botched, you know, uh, bur- uh, mugging attempt. But the whole thing is very confusing, and some people say it was actually a, a hit put out by Paul Pot, uh, and it was a gang thing. People went away, but he was killed, and he had twenty six hundred dollars cash on him, and they they never took his money. So the, his whole story is is uh, is quite fascinating, and another story that's really interesting this guy shanberg is a very interesting uh character he was on the way to becoming the editor of the new york times and he had a huge fight with you know um uh with the editor of the time and they were writing pieces about you know real estate stuff in in new york and he was like you know the times is on the wrong side of this and he resigned over the whole thing and they ended up you know writing freelance and doing what he how he wanted to do things he really stuck by his uh you know, his um, uh, ideals and, and his principles. And, uh, and I also found out that he did a piece on, on Donald Trump, uh, like in, what the date was, in 87. And he said that Trump was, I'll read the piece, he can deny all he wants, any designs on the White House, but Trump has the kind of instincts that are perfect for the age we live in, in the age of stage smoke and magic mirrors, and imagery in short he's the kind of man we admire and like these days and naturally he asks, why not me this guy wrote this 32 years ago yes. it's like my goodness he's uh he's a very you know so the shanberg character is fascinating and the character that plays dith pran is fascinating there's so much interesting background to this film um and, and I, will,
0: I-, I will say that i mean dith Prawn is also a very interesting character i mean he he you know, the last third of the film is mostly him escaping out of that labor camp, and then trying to make it to the Thai border, where there's a, a huge refugee center where they're taking you know Cambodians who have survived this process, and and so and you know, Shamberg doesn't give up on him, uh, even though he's in New York, and there's there's constant flashback of you know flip scenes between New York and and Cambodia. And, you know, he's he's written letters to hundreds of relief organizations with his with photographs of them. He speaks about them at all the awards. He keeps the man's memory. He visits his family in San Francisco and gives them updates. Eventually, Prawn does manage to survive. He survives and makes it to the Thai border. Schomburg actually flies back to Thailand and and they reunite and it's you know it's a very touching moment and you know the New York Times basically employed this guy for the rest of his life as a as a New York Times photographer and so you know he they took care of um, providing work and you know he he ended up actually uh, passing away of pancreatic cancer he lived in New Jersey actually where not too far from where we are now so you know he had a very interesting you know very interesting life and this movie is just so emotionally i mean i cried a couple times during this movie or i didn't cry but i was teared up a couple of key moments in this movie that were just so powerful you know in regards to the situations that were happening i mean it's just such a different movie to the to passage to india i mean i felt that the like passage to india is like this kind of sterile step away look at this kind of experience this movie the killing fields just rips you and just drags you into this thing It just really just kind of puts you into these situations that are so intense emotionally it was just so powerful and you know even though i've seen the movie before i still felt the connections to uh, and also you know being somebody who had actually been in cambodia and seen you know firsthand the results of this you know it just it was a very very emotionally and powerful impactful movie that stunning to me that these two movies were made in the same year (laughs) you know because they're so just visually and stylistically different in in how they're conveying their their stories you know i I was really interested to see these movies right now you know basically a couple days apart because you just realize how different they are
1: well, actually, I would say, like in terms of cinematography, you know, clearly there's an off. You know, uh, Killing Fields is much more harrowing. There's there's sequences of death squads killing people. There's a a scene of a a Khmer Rouge soldier, um, you know, offering an apple at the end of a bayonet for people that he's tied up, and he's going back and forth, you know, and, the, and they're they're biting at the apple. And then this kid bites the apple and he shoots him in the head. And so these kinds of graphic images, I would say, anyone seen the Deer Hunter? there's moments and you're just like, Oh my God, this is, it's, it's emotionally exhausting because it's so violent and terrifying that definitely doesn't exist in, in Passage to India, but Passage to India is a prelude to, you know, what happens 40, uh, 20 years later, there's an awful lot of violence that happened. And with Gandhi and then the, the, the exit of the English and then the, the incredible violence that happened um, post. So I, maybe if you, I guess if this could have been a film, you know, on the, Based in the '50s or '60s in Cambodia, where all this thing I think interesting about uh, passage to India is this violence or this anger is completely suppressed because everyone is used to kowtowing and accepting British rule and going, you know, following their rules. Here, it's like we've taken over, and uh, and and that anything related to the West or anything related to the history of the country. It's just it's out the window and it's chaos. So Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. But I mean the directors make choices on how they're gonna do this, right? And the intensity of how you know you're inserted into the story and the killing fields is so much more powerful than you know, experiencing a passage to India. So it's I mean it's definitely stylistically it's a very different because the stories, you know, there could be you know, the way that what happened in the caves could have been way more of an intense experience for the audience than they, they portrayed it. But, you know, it's it's very much, you know, kind of almost like a Hitchcock, you know, very British, you know, British, you know, kind of vibe to it. That's that's just more you're we're gonna we're gonna get you this close and then that's as close as we're gonna get you to this experience and then killingfield it's like we're putting you in there you're in there with those moments are there where you know they're trying to get this photo to to come out in a certain way uh so that this guy's life could basically be saved by giving him a fake passport you know and the experience of trying to get this right and just being in that moment is so intense. And you know those are choices that they're making to do that and to to portray that. And it, you're right, the deer hunter, um, even things like uh, you know uh, all the president's men. These this style of filmmaking is very much something that had been prevalent up you know for the last ten years. Choices that directors are making to shoot these films this way. And this guy, um, uh, lean, no way, just not his thing. You know, he's like flip my switch back to you know the Lawrence of Arabia vibe. And that's where we're going with this, you know, and it's so it's a, it's a different to me. It was just, you know, he, that's just not his thing. And so, but it's amazing that these two films are from the same year.
1: But I think you're right. But so if, if, for me, in terms of, I agree that uh in terms of tone, you know, obviously they're very different, but passage to India, like much, much British literature, I don't know when it ended, but up until then, at least with Forrester and, many others, uh, many other authors that derive from the, you know, the English, you know, way to do things. It's about propriety. It's about how to do things. And it's about, you know, it's not about murder and killing. And and this moment, so there's a moment that happens in, in Passage to India, where, you know, she thinks that she, maybe that Aziz tried to assault her. It's pretty clear in the end that it probably didn't happen, but we're never told, we never see it. And that that's one of the things that Forrester thought was really important. You can't actually see it because as soon as you see it, then we can have a definitive view of it. He doesn't want to show those things because then it's all up to interpretation. Whereas this film, uh, uh, you know, Killing Fields is not too much interpretation going on here. There was a quarter of their population. It was a genocide. And as you said, they completely cleaned out the capital of the country and put them all into camps. And it was horrible retribution and they, they they don't even really you know they barely get to the surface I read more and more about what Pol Pot did and it, it's just appalling what happened in that country and it wasn't just you know trying to make the you know they, they called it year zero and all these things and my goodness the what happened in that country they don't show they don't show much torture or anything but it's uh it is a document a fictionalized document of something that was just it, a terrible moment in history. And one of the the horrible things that I learned afterwards was that, you know, uh, Pol Pot maintained power and the Vietnamese were like, this is a crazy country that's, they're killing everybody. They actually went in to restore order and who did the Americans side with? They side with Pol Pot because they had a bad thing with Vietnam. We understand that, but they just wanted stability. And I, I was, this film is a really good, it's a snapshot of just, a terrible moment in history from every perspective, from the Cambodians' perspective, from the American perspective, there's nobody that looks good in this film. And it's just, when you, you, you finish it, you're thinking, what, how did this happen? This happened, you know, uh, 40 uh, odd years ago and we, everyone knew what was going on or lots of people knew, and there was power to stop a lot of these things and nobody did because of political reasons. And it's, you certainly leave at the end pretty exhausted um, one thing I did want to add about, uh, the, we didn't talk about other people in the film. John Malkovich is in this film, you know, um, and he's, a, he's pretty good. I wouldn't say he's a, anything to write home about, but he's, he plays a photojournalist. Uh, Spalding, Grain, uh, Spalding Gray, who did uh, a film a couple years later, which turned into this house classic, which I saw um, in, in the college circuit uh, called Swimming to Cambodia. And it was basically him doing monologues about his experiences making this film. And the film was made by, uh, so the soundtrack was made, done by Mike Oldfield, who I was a huge, you know, he did Tubular Bells. He's basically the guy that created, well, he was the album that starred Virgin Records, which began Richard Branson's Empire. And he does the soundtrack. And I say it's pretty good overall. There's moments he kind of overdoes. I don't think he's really a soundtrack guy. He's got some great moments, the harrowing stuff when they're in the the labor camps. The music is uh, done phenomenally well. So there's lots of good, things going on, that's for sure.
0: You know, I I will say, too, that there are some parts of this film that do show itself, because there is a a real white savior mentality to the, to the film in the sense that, you know, the whole idea that the colonials are, they feel like they have some kind of control over that You could have gotten him out of there if you wanted to, and you yeah. should feel some kind of white guilt to, you know, as a, yeah. as this, you know, and then when he, when he reunites with them, and, and there's like this, there's this kind of white savior, you know, mentality about that part as well. And it's just, there is a kind of a, you know, you do get that vibe from this movie as well in that sense. And that bothered me a little bit, not as much as in the other film, with the especially with that Alex Guinness thing, but but yeah, there was some things in here that date the movie a little bit. But I mean, to me, those were very minor compared to the the messages that this movie and and, and shared with you about that of that moment in time in that place. Because it is, you know, if you're not aware of this, it's a very educational
1: movie. Yeah, I, that I think you said it there. For me, I think there's a lot. So both of them have. You know, one thing we didn't talk about was the visuals. Um, uh, done by the cinematographer Chris Benesch, and he did a lot of films afterwards. I Didn't realize The Mission, Michael Collins, The Pledge, North Country, The Reader. The, some of the visuals in in this film are just beautiful. There's these great shots on the river, sunset silhouettes, and and the country. It was shot in Thailand, so you know, obviously, symbol topography and and, and architecture. Uh, it it portrays a it's a fascinating because it portrays a beautiful. I mean, it's obviously a beautiful country. But it also portrays really, it's like a nightmare. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare taking place in a beautiful country. And the visuals do that incredibly well. And also, I have to say that I think *Passage India, there's some shots in it, I think that are just absolutely beautiful. Yeah. The tone is totally different. They're important moments that a lot of people don't know about. A lot of people don't know about the British Raj. And if you talk to you know many young people today, they don't know what happened in Cambodia. So I definitely recommend these just because you learn they're, they're, they're historical. There's a lot of, fact based on both films they're obviously fictionalized a little bit but they convey things that it's important for us to know about
0: all right well um i think we had a good episode on this might be a record breaker for us but we'll find out and you know as we move forward we will be uh looking at some other films that uh, we are picking and based on some different categories coming up soon and we'll let you know so thanks again for uh listening to cinema around the corner
1: thanks
0: a lot